Okay, so um, don't worry. You guys are going to be out in plenty of time to go home to watch the train wreck. I mean, the debate uh, tonight. So, so there's a, there's a ministry. Um, it's called Ligonier Ministries. And they have commissioned Lifeway Research to do some research for them. They're calling it the, the State of Theology survey is what they've done. So they sent these surveys out to like 3000 people. Okay. It's just a, some Christians, some non-Christians. And then for the, some that are Christians, some of them are, are Protestants. Some of them are Catholic. Some of them are evangelical. Some of them are, are reformed and, and whatever, all different kinds of people. And they get these surveys back and it's just a survey of, of 45, 46 questions or so just about basic theology. Okay. And then they've taken all of these answers that they got back from these surveys and they've put them on their websites so that you can see, um, what they're calling, what they're saying is the state of theology in, in, in America right now. And there were two questions on the survey that related to, um, the person of Jesus Christ and his identity, who he is and, and so on and so forth. And so the first question that was asked is, I'm sorry, it was a statement, and then they had to say whether they agreed with the statement, disagreed with the statement, strongly agreed, strongly disagreed, remained neutral or whatever. The first statement was, Jesus is truly God and has a divine nature, and Jesus is truly human and has a human nature. Now, 62% of just the general population, the consensus of people that were surveyed, 62% agreed with that. Okay, and now out of that pool of people, 83% of evangelicals agreed with that. Okay, so we want 100% to agree with that, um, but 83% in research like this is actually a pretty good number. Um, so, so that's good. But the second statement that was presented to them was, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. That was the second statement. Now, 54% of the general population surveyed, they agreed with that. And out of those that agreed, 63% of evangelicals that were surveyed agreed with that statement. With 49% of those evangelicals strongly agreeing with that statement. Now, if you, if you have read the chapter in the book, you, you would know that 100% of evangelicals should have strongly disagreed with that statement right there. Jesus is not a being created by God. I mean, we talked about this in the first week with the Trinity. Jesus always was, right? Um, and so that shows that there are, the, the, the majority of evangelicals, at least, are a little bit confused about the nature of Christ. And, and actually... This belief right here that, that 69% of evangelicals agree with is actually heretical. It was condemned as heresy a long time ago. If you say that Jesus is a created being by God, then you lose his divinity, you lose his deity, and he is not capable and able to do the things that we're going to talk about next week that he has done. Okay? It, this is saving us. All right? Um, probably the single most important question that we can answer is who is Jesus? And if we get this wrong, there could be some pretty serious consequences. So um, that's why I'm glad to get into this today um, because understanding rightly who Jesus is, is very important, especially the things that we're going to talk about today. Today specifically, we're going to be talking about the person of Christ. 
Okay, now Christology in general um, is usually devoted up into or divided up into three separate categories: the person of Christ, which is his humanity and his deity, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, the work of Christ, which is the atonement that he bought for us, that he earned for us. That's what we're going to be talking about next week. And then the offices of Christ, how Christ continues to reign today as our prophet, our priest, and our king. And we're not going to get into that, um, into this, in this class. Um, but, um, I will send you guys some resources and you will get them because I'm going to fix that email problem. Yeah, we'll see. Lord willing, Lord willing. So, The person of Jesus Christ, this is the definition for the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person, and he will be so forever. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person, and he will be so forever. Now, whenever we begin a discussion about the person of Christ, we have to start where the person of Christ began, and that is at his birth, right? So we're going to talk about the virgin birth. Bible's very clear that Jesus was born of a virgin. There's many scriptures that talk about this. Um, Matthew 1, 18 says that now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph was undeniably concerned about this, right? And so he... The Bible says he was a just man, and so he was going to put her away quietly. He's like, hey, my fiance, who I have not actually married yet, who I have not known yet, is pregnant. She's got a baby, and so something crazy is going on. But, you know, praise the Lord, uh, an angel comes to Joseph, and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph then did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had born a son. And he called his name Jesus. So right here from the get-go, we see that, that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, apart from any kind of, of interaction with Joseph, with Mary. Okay, We also see a parallel account in Luke angel comes to Mary that Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, the Holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the son of God. Um, so the Bible is very clear and precise and direct about Jesus's conception. He was indeed born of a virgin um, by the power of the Holy spirit. And this has a couple implications for us. Um, the virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Okay. Jesus was born through woman. So there's his humanity by the Holy spirit. So there's his deity into one. So, Think about the implications if that was not the case. And if, they, if that was not explained to us the way that it is. If Jesus was created by God in heaven and then he was sent to earth, then it might be hard for us to understand the, hu- the humanity of Jesus. You know, but he, God totally could have done that. He could have created Jesus as a full, f- fully fledged human and then sent him here. But we, that would not be so clear, would it? And we wouldn't be convinced to believe him if he said that he was fully a human, if, if he had no parents. Um, 
if Jesus was born of two human parents, and then perhaps later on his divinity, his deity was given to him by God later on or something, then that would be very hard to understand and to believe as well. His deity would be able to be challenged there. It wouldn't make much sense. But because Jesus was born of a woman by the Holy Spirit, it is easy for us to understand and see that full humanity and full deity united in one person, Jesus Christ. So we must defend um, the virgin birth because it allows Jesus Christ to be easily understood as fully man and fully God. Now, also, the virgin birth makes possible Christ's true humanity without any inherited sin. Okay? Um, remember, the angel came, just looked at that. He said that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. So because the Holy Spirit is involved in this process, it's not two humans making a baby. That allowed for Jesus to be born sinless. The angel said he will be born holy. Now, if Jesus was born with sin, that creates a, a whole other world of problems for us. Okay, um, And we're going to look at that here in just a minute, Jesus' sinlessness. But needless to say, the virgin birth is very important to us because if you take away the virgin birth, you take away um, any kind of claim that Jesus has to be fully man and fully God, but you also open up the possibility that he could have been born with sin, which would have just been a catastrophe. So there is your doctrine of the virgin birth and why is it, why it is important. Um, now, something that we see in the life of Jesus Christ in regards to his humanity, okay, is that he experienced several or all of human weakness and limitation, okay? Um, so he had a human body, and this body grew and developed, and he experienced pain, um, and he matured just as we do. We see this in Luke chapter 2, verse 40. The child grew, this time about Jesus, the child grew and he became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. We also see this again in, in two verses later. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus wasn't just born as a little infant omniscient and had all this knowledge and super strong. And he didn't come just as a full man already out of the womb of Mary. He was a little baby in a real human body. And he, and he learned to walk, okay? And he learned to use a spoon to eat his food. And, and he learned how to talk. And he grew in wisdom. And um, so what that means is, and here is the, uh, the shocker statement, Jesus made mistakes. I didn't feel the air leave the room when I said that. Let me qualify that. What I meant is that Jesus, okay, so whenever he's learning to walk, he's probably going to trip and fall. Okay, that's a mistake. He probably leaned over the table to grab something and knocked over some juice or wine or whatever it was they were drinking. Okay, um, he was a human just like us. And he grew and he developed just like you and I do because he had a fully human body. He grew tired like we do. It says, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he was sitting beside the well. Um, it was about the sixth hour, and he became thirsty. If you remember on the cross, he cried out, I thirst. And after he had fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, the Bible said that he, he was so hungry and he was so weak that angels had to come and to minister to him, to take care of him. And, and we see the ultimate human weakness in the body and the life of Jesus Christ, in the fact that his human body experienced death on the cross. Um, at that moment, life ceased to flow through him. He really did die. Um, death really did overcome his body. 
Um, so certainly we can see that in the life of Jesus, he dealt with the same weaknesses and limitations that all of humanity does. And after his death, Jesus rose from the dead in a physical body. Okay, in the same physical body that he had. After his resurrection, when he first encounters the disciples, he says to them, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. In his resurrection, he came back in a fully human, complete human body. He is showing them and proving to them that he's the same man that they knew before. It is the same human body that Jesus ascended into heaven with after his resurrection. So after proving his humanity to them, remember he told the disciples, I'm going to the Father, and he ascends into heaven. And then in Acts, that, that, count, that account is recounted for us again, and the angel that is there says, the same way that you have seen him go, you will see him return. So at the very, on the very last week of this class, we're going to talk about the return of Christ, but Already, we know that Jesus Christ is going to come back as a man. And he is now in heaven as a man, in his body, right now. He is never going to be able to shed the flesh that he took on whenever he became a human being. He's going to remain in that state forever. Jesus had um, a human mind. Remember earlier we just read that in Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom. So obviously he went through the same learning processes that all of us do. Um, he learned how to eat and to read and to write. And he even learned how to be obedient. Hebrews 5.8 says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. And that, that, um, that language, what he suffered, kind of, kind of groups together everything that, that he suffered in his lifetime. So his parents probably gave him chores to do and he learned to be obedient. He learned, he grew into this. Um, he, he faced all of the same things that we have to go through. His limited mind is also shown to us whenever he's talking about the day that he's going to return. He says in Mark thirteen thirty two, but of that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. He doesn't even know, but only the father. So his mind is, it was limited. He had a human mind. Um, he had a human soul and human emotions. Many times scripture says that Jesus was troubled in spirit or that he was grieved in his soul. So just before his crucifixion, Jesus said in John twelve twenty seven, now is my soul troubled. He, it was deep anguish. Uh, and John writes a little later after that, um, that when Jesus had thus spoken, he was talking about his crucifixion, how he was going to be carried away. When Jesus had thus spoken, he was troubled in spirit. He, he felt things to the core of who he was. Matthew 26, 38, Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Jesus is saying right here, he's like, man, look, if this, if this gets any worse, I feel like I'm going to die. He had a human soul and human emotions. Remember how Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion. That, that, that's a human emotion. Remember how he wept over the death of Lazarus and, and Jerusalem's rejection of him. He wept over these things. Um, Hebrews 5, 7 says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. Jesus felt the full range of human attitudes and emotions. And something that's really interesting about Jesus Christ is that the people near to Jesus saw him as just merely a man. Okay, so Jesus grew up in Nazareth and he lived there for 30 years. 
before he started his ministry. And then he goes out in his ministry and he comes back to his hometown and, and listen to this, what this says. And this is in Matthew 13 verses 53 through 58. Just listen to this encounter here. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And the people said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So the, all of these people that were so close to Jesus the entire time that he lived there until he was 30 years old, they didn't see anything at all that hinted that he was the son of God. That's how much of a human man Jesus Christ was. Pretty amazing when you think about it. He was very much a man, just like we are. Um, in fact, uh, he was more human than we are. Now, as much as Scripture makes Jesus out to be everything that we are, we do know and understand that there is very one important, fundamental, monumentally key difference between us and Jesus. And what is that? His sinless, his sinlessness. He was sinless. New Testament affirms that Jesus Christ was was fully human just as we are, but it also affirms that he was completely sinless, just as we are not. Pilate, whenever he was brought before Pilate, in spite of all of the accusations of the Jews that were hurled against him, he said of Jesus in John eighteen thirty eight that he could find no crime in him. And Paul refers to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 as he who knew no sin. He did not know any sin whatsoever. The author of Hebrews declares that Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. And instead, he is holy and blameless, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Peter speaks of Jesus as a lamb without blemish or spot in 1 Peter chapter 1. And then later on in chapter 2, he directly states that he committed no sin, nor was any guile found in his lips. And finally, 1 John um, 3, 5 says that in him there is no sin. So it is, it is very hard to deny that Jesus Christ was sinless. Now, there are... Many implications of this for us as well. We need to understand the importance of Christ's sinlessness in the face of temptation. All of the temptation that he felt. Christ being tempted yet remaining sinless results in some of the most precious verses within scripture that we know that we can cling on to. Um, the first one we see is Hebrews 2.18. Because he himself has suffered and has been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus Christ can help you. He's been there. He can look you in the eye and say, I've been there. I know exactly what you're saying. Um, and not only is he able to help you whenever he faces temptation, but he is also able to sympathize with you. He is able to have compassion on you because of what he's been through. Hebrews four fifteen through 16 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So every single way that you've been tempted, he has experienced that same thing, yet without sin. 
So let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus knows exactly what you need. He sympathizes with you before you even go to him. He has been where you are, no matter where you are, any temptation that you face. He knows the weight of that. And, and he knows the weight of that temptation even greater than you do. You know, a lot of people will bring up the argument, well, if Jesus never sinned, then, then he doesn't really know sin. He doesn't really, he can't really sympathize with me if he never gave in. But when you think about that, that doesn't quite make much sense. Because here's the thing, whenever we are tempted with sin, we can be tempted to such a degree and that, and that temptation may get strong and it may get really hard and then we will give in. Okay, so say maybe we've only faced 60% of the power of that sin, all right? But Jesus Christ never gave in. He resisted sin to the point of shedding his blood, Hebrews says. He resisted it all the way. He never once gave in. And you know that it grew stronger and stronger and stronger, and he never gave in. So the argument that he doesn't quite understand just falls flat on his face. Because he understands to an even greater and deeper degree the full temptation of sin. Greater than we will ever know. Because we give in and we enjoy it. Start preaching and lost my spot. <laughs> okay, so his humanity, because he is, because he is human, okay, um, it was necessary that he be a human. Okay, and it was necessary for, for several reasons. One, for representative obedience. Okay, so we're all sinners and God demands nothing less than perfection in his presence, right? And so Jesus being fully man, he was able to step into our place and he was able to represent us in the obedience that we should have fulfilled before God. So where Adam and we have failed, Christ has succeeded on our behalf. And we see this in Romans 5, 18 through 19. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam's sin and us falling into condemnation because of that, so also one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. You realize a man fell and a man redeemed us. He had to be a man. For as by one man's disobedience we were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. He had to be a man in order to be our representative, a fitting representative, and to obey in our place. He also had to be a, a human. He also had to be fully human to be a, a sufficient substitute sacrifice. Okay, So where previously we were just talking about Christ represented us by living the life that we should have died, this point is in regards to Jesus Christ being able to die the death that we should have died. Um, and again, we go to the author of Hebrews to see this. He says, For surely it is not with angels that he is concerned, but with the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That term there, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that means that he had to be fully human. He had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he could make sufficient propitiation so that he could be a suitable sacrifice, so that the death that he died could be applied to us. Now, in the Old Testament, God gave special um, special um, mercies and graces to the people of Israel, allowing them to sacrifice goats and lambs and bulls and all of that. But th what the author of Hebrews tells us is that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is impossible. It is not equal. It is not the same thing. 
God says in the Old Testament that blood will be required. Man's blood will be required. And so that's why Jesus had to be a man. To be able to step into our place. And to be our representative in the death that he died. If he had not been fully man, he could not have died to pay the penalty for man's sins. He could not have been a substitute a sacrifice for us. We see this also in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Okay, so he was a man, born under the law. Okay, not above the law because he created it, but under the law. So he had to fulfill every single thing that we were supposed to fulfill in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I love this quote by John of Damascus. He says, the whole Christ assumed the whole me so that he might grant salvation to the whole me. Whenever you are saved, every single part of you is made a new creation. Second Corinthians five says your mind, your soul, your body, your emotions, every single part of you, Christ redeemed. He didn't just redeem your flesh. He didn't just redeem your heart. He didn't just redeem your mind. He became every single thing that you are, every single thing that we are, so that he could grant salvation to every single bit of us. That's why Jesus had to be fully human. So now, let's discuss the deity of Christ. This is the fact that Jesus Christ, we've we've seen he was fully man in every way. Now we will see that he was fully God in every single way. There's several, several, several scriptural assertions that Jesus Christ is God. And I've just got a few of them, but there are a lot. Okay. But the first one we'll look at Isaiah 9, 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name, Jesus Christ's name, will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now that word for God there is Theos. Um, which is a strong form of God. It's the same word that is used to speak of God as creator, as ruler, as almighty, as powerful. It's the same word used to describe Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Revelation 1.8, this is God speaking. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And we see Jesus Christ at the end of Revelation. He says, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He says the same exact thing. He attributes the same titles to himself that God does. And also notice here what Jesus says. He says, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. But also while Jesus was alive, he said what? Vengeance is the Lord's, he will repay. So Jesus Christ here, he's not only taking God's titles as his own, but he's also taking God's responsibilities to deal out judgment as his own. Jesus Christ is claiming to be God in this instance. Hebrews 1, 3, one of my favorite verses, says that, talking about Jesus, says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's amazing. Beautiful, majestic language to describe Jesus as God. And we see this also in Colossians 1.19. In him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God, the fullness of God was in Jesus Christ. And we have this idea repeated in the next chapter of Colossians. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So there are several 
scriptural assertions that Jesus Christ is God. But not only does scripture just assert plainly that Jesus Christ is God, but we also see that Jesus is God and he is equal with God because Jesus shares in a lot of the same authority um, that God does. So remember um, in the Old Testament, whenever God would speak to the people, a prophet would say, hey, hear the voice of the Lord. You know, the, the Lord says, hear the voice of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. But Jesus, he came, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, he came and he started his statements with the, with the phrase, but I say to you. you. You've heard it said in the Old Testament, God said this. You heard that said, but I say to you. Now, if that was any man saying that, he would, they would have been rightly and justly crucified. Because he was making himself equal with God. He was saying he had more authority with God. That he could override the word of God and say his peace. But it's okay for God to clarify what God says. Right? So we know that Jesus Christ is God because of the authority that he had. He could speak with the authority of God because he himself was God. Jesus is God because of his immortality. And what I mean by that is his inability not to stay dead. Okay. Um, John two nineteen, Jesus says, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. And we know that he's talking about his body because John says exactly this. Just a couple of verses later. He says, he was not speaking of the temple made of stones in Jerusalem, but he spoke of the temple of his body. So when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus was claiming to be immortal, to have complete control over his life. Um, And that obviously came true. Remember, he claimed to have the power to lay down his own life and to take it up again. Um, That's an indication that he possessed the divine attribute of immortality. And the author of Hebrews, it's really interesting. The author of Hebrews actually considers the immortality of Jesus Christ as a key reason as to why Jesus is able to serve us continually before God as our perfect high priest. Look at this in Ephesians 7. He says, he has become a high priest, not according to a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So in the Old Testament, you had the Levites that were the priests, right? And if you were the son of a priest, you became a priest. So he says, not according to any kind of lineage, not according to any kind of bodily descent that he experienced, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus can stand forever before God, pleading on your behalf. Just like the high priests did in the Old Testament, they pleaded with God, hey, forgive the sins of the people. Please, God, forgive the sins of the people. But they died. Every, you know, every time a high priest would die, they would have to, a new high priest would have to come up. Jesus Christ never dies. So therefore, he is our perfect high priest, always living um, to bring our petitions before God um, because he never dies. Jesus' deity is seen in his ability to be worshipped. Now, there's an Old Testament passage in Isaiah, probably one of the most clear passages in all of Scripture that really clues you in on what God's biggest concern is. This is Isaiah 48, 9-11, and this is God talking. He says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, so that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? 
My glory I will not give to another. You see what God is concerned about here? God is concerned about his own glory. He says, my glory I will not give to another. That's why idolatry is just considered an abomination before God. Because the glory that is only due him is given to some other created thing. And the creator himself is ignored. So, Compare and contrast this language here with this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. This is Jesus Christ. God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is worshiped. And God gives him that worship. In Hebrews 1.6, is very uh, clear, very plain. When he brings the firstborn into the world, talking about Christ, God says, let all of God's angels worship him. Worship him. This would be um, a form of glorious suicide for God. If Jesus Christ were not God, he says, my glory, I will not give to another. But he says here, all of God's angels will worship him. So there's several implications um, to Jesus's deity. Um, We can know God. We can know God. Okay. We don't just know a man whenever we know Jesus Christ. We know God, Jesus Christ said, anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. Remember, he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the radiance of his glory. The whole fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we can know God. If you want to know the heart of the Father, if you want to know the heart of God, look at Jesus Christ. He perfectly embodied every single characteristic, every single attribute of God. Another implication is that salvation is available to all, to every single person. Redemption is available to any and everybody who will come to Christ for forgiveness. It wasn't merely just a finite human that died on the cross. It was infinite God that gave his life. And so therefore that sacrifice is able to be extended to any and everybody. And one of the one of the sweetest implications of this is that God and humanity have been reunited in the strongest way possible. So it, it wasn't some angel who came down to heaven and decided to try to save humanity and, and connect us to God. It wasn't another man who came who, who who said, "Hey, I will save you," and then did this. No, but it it was God who crossed this infinite chasm came to us, fought for us, and died for us, and then rose again and carries us with him back into heaven. We are reunited with God in the strongest way possible. He came for us, and we see this 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's trespasses against them. 
we have been brought near to God on God's terms. We have been brought near to God by God. And that's not going to change. So Jesus Christ is fully human. He's fully man. And he's also fully God. So how do those two work together? What, what, what does it mean that he, he lived fully as a man, but also that he lived fully as God? What implications does each nature have for the other? Um, now, when, you, when, when we get to talk about this, we have to be careful with our words. Okay, we have to be careful. Because what you see in the life of Jesus Christ, okay, and, and, and here's something that I'm going to say, and I'm going to qualify what I say, and I've got definitions that I'm going to throw up there, okay, is that in his earthly life, the divine nature of Jesus Christ was latent. Okay? Latent is the term that I'm using. Now, latent, the definition means existing, but not yet manifest, hidden or concealed. Okay? Philippians 2, Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. Being found in the likeness of human flesh, he humbled himself to the point of death and death on the cross. This this emptying of this emptying that Jesus carried out, um, what you see is that that is him setting his power as God, his equality with God, these all of these attributes that he has as God, he's setting them aside. And what I'm saying is that they were late. Now I'm not saying that he cast them away. I'm not saying that that whenever he was here, he was not God, or that he lacked these attributes. Because he, he was fully God in every single way. To say otherwise is heretical and wrong. Um, Jesus Christ cannot never not be God. Okay? But the attributes of deity that he had, they were latent. They were um, existing but not yet manifest, hidden and concealed. Now, let me show you why I say this. Acts chapter 10, verse 37 through 39. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preaches, John the Baptist. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Because God the Father was with Jesus. Okay, look at this. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. It doesn't say that, that Jesus on his own power did these things. God did these things through Jesus Christ. Luke 5.17, on one of those days, as he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him was with Jesus to heal. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And then subsequently after this, we see that Jesus heals the paralytic. He heals the paralyzed man, but the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And then from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 12, um, Jesus comes and he has cast out a demon. And then the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come and they say, well, it's by the power of Beelzebul that you cast out this demon. Um, it's, it's by the power of another demon that you do this. And But Jesus Christ says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus Christ directly attributed his ability to cast out a demon to the spirit of God. He didn't say, I did this by my power. He said, by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, you, you also, so you see that there, there was certain aspects of him being God that he set aside. Whenever he was here, whenever he was on earth, every single thing that he did, he did through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He did not once call upon his own power as deity to do anything. And, and you, you see this, that, that he acted completely out of his humanity and everything that he did through, by, with the power of the Spirit. You see it in other ways, too. You see it, um, so like think of in the, in the garden. Okay, he is he is distraught and he's pleading with God before his crucifixion because he knows what's coming. And he says, God, if there's any way that you can remove this cup from me, please do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, if Jesus was acting completely in the mode of God in that moment, do you think God would have two separate wills in that regard? No, but Jesus as a man, as a human he was feeling the weight of what was about to come. And he said, hey, God, man, hey, I want to do what you want. But, man, if there's any way, if there's any way, please take this away from me. And this was necessary. It was necessary that Jesus Christ lay these, lay these things aside. And he do this. Um, he, he, do, he, did, he did what he did out of only the power of the Holy Spirit and through relying upon God for at least two reasons that we can see from the scriptures. Um, one, Jesus' sacrifice would not have been suitable had he been acting out of his power as God. Okay, and we see this in Hebrews 2 verse 17. For this reason, we, and we've looked at this, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. He had to be fully human in every single way to make atonement for us. Now, think about it. If he would have come, okay, and he would have burst onto the scene and in the, in the, in the wilderness, right, with Satan, you know, we, we see other scriptures that say God cannot be tempted, right? But what do we see happen with Jesus Christ? He was tempted, and he fought that temptation. It wasn't easy for him. He was there for 40 days and it weird him so much. Angels had to come and minister to him. He relied upon the word of God to defeat Satan. He didn't say, by my power, I command you to leave. He used the word of God to combat against Satan. Um, Jesus resisted sin to the point of shedding his blood. Temptation did not bounce off of the chest of Jesus Christ like bullets off of Superman's chest. Okay? He felt the weight of this. And he, he felt it even greater than we did. Now, if, if, if he would have been acting in any kind of power of divinity, that would have nullified all of that. Sure, God can come and he can live a perfect life and, and he can do all these things if he wants. If he's God, yeah, anybody can do that. But no, Jesus Christ was a man made fully human in every way, just like us. And he did what we were supposed to do, what was required of us. God didn't let God fulfill what was required for God by God. Okay? God let God become a man so that man could fulfill what was required for man to be made right with God. And another thing, and, and this, is, this is what we see God is after, right? We saw the passage in Isaiah. Um, God is after his glory, right? 
listen to this. This is amazing. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 54. Listen to this. And the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Listen to what Jesus says. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. What do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, he said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. Now, do you understand the implication of this? Jesus Christ said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. How can, how can God say that? Jesus is saying, if he would have just busted on the scene and been like, hey, I am God, behold my power as God to do these things, that glory would have meant nothing. It would have been, that would not have been glory, Jesus says. But the Father glorified Jesus Christ by allowing him to carry out his miracles, by filling him with strength, okay? By allowing him to heal the sick. Remember Acts 2.22. God attested Jesus Christ to us by working those miracles through him. Everything that Jesus Christ did here on earth, he did completely in reliance upon God, dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Never once did he call upon his power as a deity to do anything. And because of that, he can truly, truly sympathize with you in every single way. He was not privy to anything that we are not privy to. The same Holy Spirit that was within him is within us. Okay? The Christian life is possible. Okay, Jesus proved that it was possible. You can do this. We can do this because he did. Amen.